0: Through Shiloh's wide dominion. Did you sing those words? Who's Shiloh? The Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed and only potentate. Don't you love the Shriners? Calling themselves potentate? I'll tell you who's the blessed and only. I think the word only is in there for them. Right the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords, Amen. through Shiloh's wide. What do you think's outside it? Nothing. Dominion. That's the Bible word for sovereignty. Through Shiloh's wide dominion. Did you enjoy that singing? I want everyone to enjoy it. Listen. You know what? We'll give an account for this day. We will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and He'll say, Why? Why? On April 29th, did you not enjoy the singing service of the Church of Greenville? Those songs were about me. They were well selected well, for out of our hymnals. Well worded. Why didn't you enjoy singing praise to me? You were thinking about this or you were thinking about that. We'll give an account, brethren, of everything we've done in our bodies. We just had a wonderful opportunity. I'll give you one more before we leave. But I hope that you love to sing. The Bible's full of it. Amen. He loves to hear it. We've prayed for him to receive it into heaven. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 10. Let's take a little while and consider this subject of our Shiloh's wide dominion a little more. Isaiah chapter 10. You read it last evening. Let me quickly grab a verse or two out of it that will be helpful to us. Sennacherib. I am prudent. He thinks, in verse 13, I have removed the bounds of the people. I've changed national boundaries. My hand has found their riches, verse 14, and no one even peeped against me. But we come back to verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against... And hypocritical nation. Right. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Amen. That is the Lord Jehovah yes. speaking as the ruler of this Assyrian. You are nothing but a tool in my hand. Amen. How be it? He meaneth not so. Right. Neither doth his heart think so. Right. But it is in his heart To destroy and cut off nations, not a few. This is how we understand the sovereignty of God ruling the sinful actions of men. This king crossed his border into another nation that he had no right to and plundered that nation and, and ground them down like mire in the streets. What's he thinking in his heart? God's making me do this? No. I want what they've got. Greed, covetousness, pride, ambition. I want what they have. He meaneth not so in his heart to fulfill the will of God, but he will nonetheless fulfill the will of God. That's right. Because he was nothing but a saw in the hand of God who was shaking him back and forth. He was nothing but an axe in the hand of God who was hewing with him. Right. This is how we understand it. It was a sinful action. The king of Assyria was held guilty before the God of heaven for his ambition, and he was punished for it all in this chapter, though the Lord used him like a puppet in chastening His people Israel. That's how we understand it. Let's go look at a few more examples in the Bible. 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. If you don't fully grasp, understand, and comprehend some of these passages, just submit to them Amen. with cheer and joy in a sovereign God. He is greater than we can imagine. 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen. after Samuel has anointed David to be the next king of Israel, it tells us, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul... And an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. You say, that's not very nice to Saul. Saul wasn't very nice to the God of heaven. Two occasions. Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days to take care of you and the Philistines that you're afraid of. He waited until the seven days expired. And at 168 hours, he took matters into his own hands, didn't he? And the Lord judged him the first time. Then God gave him another opportunity. Kill all the Amalekites. Destroy them utterly, including their livestock. He saved Agag and the best of their livestock alive. Chapter 15. The first one was chapter 13. This is chapter 15. God said, I've taken the kingdom away from you. Don't read a verse like this without its whole context. Saul deserved exactly what he got. Saul did not want to submit himself to the God of heaven, nor the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit left him, and he was sent an evil spirit from the Lord that would trouble him the rest of his life. And where do we find him on his face before the witch of Endor, before he is killed in battle? takes his own life at the end. And he's out of this world. That's a sovereign God ruling in the affairs of Saul and David. While we're on the subject of David, let's look at second Samuel 24. Second Samuel 24. Do you know what the most horrible thing God can do? One of the most horrible things God can do to you in this world is to leave you. The Holy Spirit departed from Saul. If God steps back, can you think of the king, and it's not here in this chapter, can you think of the king that God left alone to show what was in his heart, King Hezekiah? As soon as the Lord left that great king, one of the three great kings of Judah, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, when God left that man, he invited the ambassadors of Babylon in to see all the treasures of the house of the Lord. If the Lord leaves you, you will do all sorts of things. He doesn't have to put anything in your heart. You've got it all. You've got so much there, it would burst into flames itself. Look at, how the, look at how James described the tongue. It is a world of iniquity, and it is set on fire of hell. Amen. And he's writing to believers. Second Samuel 24, And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. How did he do this? If we go read the corresponding passage in Chronicles, it says that Satan moved him. All God did was step back and let Satan have a little time with David. And Satan having a little time with a man can do terrible things like it did to Job and like it did to Adam and Eve. We don't know all the details in David's life at this point in time. We know why God did this. He was going to punish Israel for their sins, and 70,000 men died, but he used David and humbled David by this event. And if you read the whole account of this transaction, you can see David's enormous repentance given to him by the Lord, and how he begged God to tell that angel to put up his sword, his devouring sword, which he did, and on that spot was Mount Moriah, where Solomon built the temple of the Lord. You know, this event is never listed in David's crimes. If you read about David after this, David's mentioned so many times. And David will be mentioned saying that David did everything that pleased the Lord in his life, saving in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, where one man died and then a baby died. But David did that very presumptuously against the Lord. Do you know how merciful the Lord is? When he moves a man like David and lets Satan have him, he's gracious and merciful that's never listed in the crimes of it's listed right here but it's not listed when david when the lord is singing the praises of david as the greatest king he had in judah he mentions the one about uriah and bathsheba but not this one right because this was extraordinary circumstances do you remember how easily the lord forgave job in the book of job because the lord knew what he had subjected job to through satan he remembers our frame that we are dust. Now I know three friends of Job that got in trouble. And Job certainly spoke amiss. Job certainly did try to justify himself, but the Lord was merciful because the Lord knew what he had done in the life of Job by allowing Satan to have him in such a heart-strong way. When we read the verse, There hath no temptation, you, there is no, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Job's was a little uncommon. That was an exception to the general rule. And the Lord is very merciful, and I love that about the Lord. And if you read through the Bible, you'll see His graciousness. Seventy thousand men died because of this event. You know who was more righteous in this chapter? Joab was more righteous than David. David said, Joab, go out and count everyone. Joab said, what? We've been together for years, and God, no, God's told you that you're not supposed to count our army? Because we don't want to know how many we have. We want to go in faith. Go count them. So Joab goes and counts most of them. Right. Left out a tribe just to spite his uncle. Anyway, that's just a little sidelight of Second Samuel 24. Let's look at First Kings chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11. Solomon. Oh. The first half of the chapter is about how many wives he took. What's going to happen when a man who was made so wise and blessed so abundantly violates a plain commandment of Scripture? Verse 14 of 1 Kings 11, And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. There is the Lord moving a man to come and be a thorn in the side of Solomon. Solomon had a powerful empire. Wealthy, strong, peaceful. David had established its borders very wide, but notice the Lord stirring up an adversary because of Solomon's foolishness. What we're looking at is examples in the Bible of where God in His sovereign might stirs up and controls and overrules, directs and accomplishes His purpose in the sinful deeds of men, let alone the sacrifice of His Son, which was a sinful deed of men on our side, but a glorious deed of love, kindness, and salvation from His side. God is sovereign over all events. And we, we establish ourselves in that by looking at evil men and their actions and their judgment for their evil. Because the Lord put it this way, The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil and we see examples of it throughout the bible 2nd chronicles chapter 10 Rehoboam is the king of Judah king of Israel the combined nation of 12 tribes Solomon is dead Rehoboam rules Solomon's taxes were heavy the people came to Rehoboam and said will you please be lighter on us than your father was he says give me a few days and i'll think about it his young basketball buddies told him listen Just keep taxing this nation so that we can all enjoy the good life. The old men that had been his father's counselors said if you'll back off on them a little bit, they will serve you forever. That's the difference between wise men and young men. For a young man to be wise, it is an exception. And God has to make them wise. He followed the advice of the young men and he came out and spoke harshly, foolishly against the people. And it says in verse 15... Second Chronicles 10.15 So the king hearkened not unto the people. For the cause was of God, that the Lord might perform his word, which he spake by the hand of Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And what you can read happens after this is ten tribes revolt against Rehoboam the son of Solomon and Jeroboam becomes their king, the son of Nebat in fulfillment of the Word of God that had been prophesied earlier. But the point is, the cause was from the Lord. If the Lord does not give you grace in your heart, you would be as stubborn and as foolish and as proud as Rehoboam was on this occasion and lost the kingdom. He lost ten twelfths of the kingdom of Israel because of his foolish basketball buddies who gave him foolish advice and because the Lord did not restrain him from that foolishness he gladly went after it, that he was going to confiscate the wealth and live like his father had lived, though he didn't have the gifts of wisdom that his father had. This is the Lord. It's throughout the Bible. We can read it in so many different places. I'm picking a few for you. Look at John 12. John 12, God is sovereign over the evil deeds of men. If you are offered truth... And you rebel against that truth. God will send you a lie. So hard for people to believe that. When did we first ask for a lie? When did we first say we preferred lies to truth? The Garden of Eden. And men have done it ever since. Ezekiel chapter 14 tells... We're not turning there. We're at John 12. Ezekiel 14 tells us that when a man approaches a prophet... It doesn't matter whether he's a false prophet or a true prophet. If he approaches that prophet with the stumbling block of iniquity or an idol in his heart, he's already set up a secret sin that he doesn't want to give up. The Lord says, I myself will answer that man. I will deceive the prophet so that the prophet will tell the man something that is not true and I'll destroy them both. Ezekiel 14. That's one of many. Do not mess around when God offers you truth. And right now, He's offering us truth right now. He's offering us the wonderful privilege of worshiping and serving Him, praising Him from our hearts right now. We can bow down and lift up our hearts to heaven right now and worship and extol the great King of Heaven. If you, if this isn't exciting enough for you, the Lord will give you something and turn you away from this and lead you out to a pasture and you will be in the pig pen of this world. One of the worst things God can ever do is give you what you want in your flesh. Then you think He's blessing you while He's cursing you. John chapter 12 verse 37, But though He had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on Him. Why wouldn't you believe with one miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ? I will be thou clean. And incurable leprosy disappears in one nanosecond? Would would that get your attention? Would that get mine? Would we fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, grab His ankles and tell Him that we loved Him? That He was indeed the Son of God? Wouldn't that be the obvious, proper thing to do? But though He had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on Him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory and spake of him. He means, you can find this in Isaiah 6, When Isaiah saw the glory of God, he blinded their hearts, blinded their eyes, hardened up their hearts. How does he do that? He withdraws his grace. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we are entirely hardened, we are entirely blind, and we are entirely deaf. We would not see, hear, or understand. All he has to do is withdraw his grace. When he shows us truth, when he showed them miracles, and they did not believe on him, further judgment came. This had been a rebellious and a stiff-necked people and nation from the beginning. And he judged them. And he's righteous in doing so. We want to tremble before him and beg for his mercy. And we want to come humbly before him and thank him for everything he has shown us. And tell him we are but little children. And we do not know how to go out or to come in. And will he please open up his word to us and open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of his law. Right. That can be our only approach to this God. Our only approach to our Father, never in confidence, never in pride, that we know something in and of ourselves. We can come boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's because He was the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God in whom He was well pleased. But look at the sovereign judgment of God on men. They couldn't see miracles any clearer than Pharaoh could. not Pharaoh missed all the plagues of Egypt so that he took his chariot into the Red Sea. These people saw all the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew the time had been fulfilled. They had prophecies that dated the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ to the year. Daniel chapter 9. The prophecy of 70 weeks. 69 weeks unto Messiah the Prince. You know, we read in Luke chapter 2 that there were people waiting for Him. They knew the time was about to be fulfilled. Even though they could look at their tables and their charts, they couldn't see the Lord Jesus Christ because He had blinded their eyes. Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Speaking of that New Testament Babylon. Mystery. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. You know, as we sang, Babylon has fallen. I don't recall ever singing that one in Sunday school. My father agrees. Did you ever sing that one in Sunday school, anyone? Babylon has fallen. You know, but you go into the Bible. Is it proper to rejoice about a city being overthrown? I go to Psalm 137 and it starts out by saying, By the rivers of Babylon there sat we down when they went away captive. Do you know how that little psalm ends up? Do you know what the last verse is? I wonder how often this has been a memory verse in Joy Club. (laughs) Psalm 137, verse 10. Happy shall he be that dashes thy little ones against a stone. I was asked recently about Ezekiel 18. And it was a good question. It's, and it is a good question. That if you see the judgment of God coming and you don't warn a man for his sins, then you'll be responsible for the blood of that man. But when anybody takes you to Ezekiel 18, you remind them that that is for only a very special group of people. God's people. God's people. In the nation of Judah. Did they send any warning advance into the nations of Canaan to warn them that they were about to get slaughtered? Yeah. Was there any blood on anyone's hands? No blood at all. Because God had sovereignly chosen to wipe out the nations of Canaan. There was no message sent. There were no prophets sent. Except once in a while, by the grace of God, like to Nineveh, when he sent his unwilling prophet, Jonah. We come to Revelation 17.17 17, and we've got this mystery Babylon, the great whore riding upon the beast. We understand this to be the Catholic religion and all the false religion that's come out of her riding the beast of the Roman Empire to power because we come to the last verse of the, of the chapter and it says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And what city was reigning over the kings of the earth when John wrote that verse? Rome. But we want to back up. We're looking at the sovereignty of God with the hearts of men and their evil actions. Re- Revelation 17:17, 17, 17, For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Kings giving up their kingdom willingly to the Roman Empire. And the revived Roman Empire in the form of the Roman Catholic Church. That whore riding upon the back of that beast. Who put that? The point, the point we want from verse 17 is this. Who did this work? He hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. It doesn't matter what motive they had. It could have been all sorts of motives. They could have thought that it was politically expedient for them to give their kingdom to this beast. Whatever the cause the Lord left them with that option and they chose that option. They chose that willingly, but He accomplished His will. He hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will. That's the sovereignty of God. We come to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and we see it so plainly. John chapter 19, and verse 11. The wickedest deed ever done on earth was the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. No event in time can exceed this crime. Never was there a more innocent man. Never was there a more unjustified murder than this case. But notice what we read about it. John chapter 19 and verse 11. Jesus answered, saying to Pilate, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. I want the middle part of that verse. The ability that Pilate had. Pilate thought that he was in charge of this trial and situation in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, it was given from heaven. Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. You couldn't do anything. You may think you're powerful. But it's been given from heaven because He had come to die for us and He had to die a certain way. Could He have died the Jewish way? What was the Jewish way to die? Stoning. It would have broken His bones and it would have not have fulfilled the Scriptures that He would be put on a tree. So it was given to Pilate. The Lord worked it all out. We, we read through the crucifixion. We see His vestment being... lots being cast forth to fulfill Scripture. We see him thirsting. We see him, no bones being broken, but him being pierced. We see, we see where he was buried in a rich man's grave. All of it to fulfill scripture because God sovereignly overruled them. They couldn't break his legs. They pierced his side. The Jews couldn't stone him. They tried to cast him off a cliff. The Romans had to kill him because the Roman form of crucifixion was the way he was going to die. Look at Acts chapter 2 all oh, these are precious verses. I hope that some of you remember the first times you read some of these verses and how much they they meant to our souls to see that there was a god in charge in the in the language of these verses. Peter begins his sermon and he's he's preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified in verse 22 and he says in verse 23 him being delivered by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Notice, the determinate counsel brought about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ because it pleased God to bruise Him. God had chosen His only begotten incarnate Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. He had chosen that. And it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. But the men that bruised Him were guilty for sin in the bruising because notice it says that with wicked hands ye have crucified and slain Him. So their hands were wicked. They had the blood on them. They were even so foolish as to say, let His blood be on us and on our children. And it was. And it was called for on them. From them. And yet it was according to the determinate counsel of God. Just like Sennacherib. Sennacherib was the determinant counsel of God, the Assyrian king, to come against Israel and to accomplish God's purpose. But he thinketh not so in his heart. And when we read about Sennacherib in the passage read from Isaiah 37, it said he passed over and offended because he started thinking that he had accomplished all that. And so the wickedness is assigned to men, the righteousness assigned to God, even though he uses the wicked hands of men to slay his own son because it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God did not have to put in the hearts of those Jews, nor of the Romans, to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate was such a wimp, he saw that the Jews were threatening to tell Caesar that he was not loyal. And for political expediency, he washed his hands and said, crucify him all by God's direction according to His determinant counsel. There's many, many more verses that we could look at. We can look at where God restrains men. And if God ever restrains a man, you know what we can learn from a passage like that? Then every other sin that occurs, God didn't restrain it, therefore it must be the will of God for that sin to occur. Not as sin in itself, but as accomplishing His purpose. Right. We can see where God softens men's, men's hearts to do good, God directs men's hearts. God hardens hearts. And God provokes men. But He's righteous every single time because the Bible says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. Right. We do not have a problem with that. Sin is because God created a good creature with a free will and gave it a commandment. The sin resulted from the rebellion of that creature. And He is so fair when He lets a man play such a fool. The Garden of Eden was the fairest transaction you could ever imagine. The wisest man with a perfect wife in a perfect world having fellowship with God without a sinful world around him with only one commandment to keep. That's as good as it gets. We have a few more. And our wives aren't quite as good. Almost women, but not quite as good. And we live in a very sinful world. We had the best representation that you can imagine in the Garden of Eden. No one should ever say, if the sovereignty of God is true, then man hasn't had a chance. We all had our chance in the Garden of Eden. I've taught it many times. Do not let anyone ever confuse you or teach the heresy that man hasn't had a chance. He had his chance in Eden. And it was a wonderful chance. It was a better chance than you could ever exercise in your life. And even if he were to put you in Eden... You're not nearly Adam. Right. God gave us a chance in Adam. And we made our choice. We would prefer the devil and lies. We would prefer death to life. We'd prefer hell or the lake of fire to paradise. Let me take a few minutes and talk to you about foreknowledge. We've just had it here in this verse. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. I hope you can see the order of those words. Determinate counsel comes first, and then foreknowledge. There can't be foreknowledge without determinate counsel, because unless an event is determined, it's not certain enough to know. Foreknowledge comes second. God's foreknowledge works, this is as much as I will say. Otherwise, we just read verses. God determined. if you have a string of dominoes and you set them up perfectly, which you can never do, God can always set them up perfectly, even though the dominoes he's playing with are you and me. And we have a whole lot of thoughts that twirl through the head. Dominoes don't have any. Do you know what the difference is in intelligence? We have none. He has it all. We line up little blocks of wood that are painted black. We line them up imperfectly, but we still can look at the last one and know that it's going to fall down when we determine that we're going to push the first one. When our determinate counsel says, "I've strung up enough around this room, I think I'll push the first one," our foreknowledge tells us that it's going to fall down. You know what? You're not always sure, though, do you? Because if, if you put a little tiny curve in that thing in a few places, they just might stop falling down. You know what I'm talking? You've done that before? You push down the first one it doesn't make it to the end? Because you can't see everything that's going to happen based on you pushing the first one down. But the determinate counsel of God to push the first one down, He knows with absolute certainty every single thing that will follow from that event. Right. Amen. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. If this and this and this is put into place and this and this will most certainly happen, He'll be crucified by the Romans instead of stoned by the Jews. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. But I don't want that part of foreknowledge. There's a better foreknowledge that I just want to tell you about for a sec, for a few minutes. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Oh, there is a huge error made on this subject. If, if you have chosen in your heart to reject the sovereignty of God and that God elects men to eternal life, If you have chosen to do that, and most men have made that choice, I will not accept a God that elects men to eternal life. Then you open the Bible and you see all the verses about election and predestination and determinate counsel and God's sovereignty, you have a problem. And the Lord has given you your solution to hang yourself. He's given you the rope that you can throw over a branch and hang yourself. It's called the word foreknowledge. And these men will go and say... God foreknew who would invite Jesus into their heart, and therefore He elected them. What kind of an election is that? Who was electing whom in that case? I thought election in the Bible was God electing sinners. But if election is the result of a man making a choice for God, then it's man making the election. That's what they do with the word foreknowledge. If they've already made up their minds that they're going to hate election, even though it's taught in the Bible... Then God gives them the rope to hang themselves, just like the other passages I've referred you to when it says that if you come to a priest with an idol and a stumbling block set up in your heart, he'll give you a lie. If you're Ahab and you call for Micaiah the prophet, Micaiah the prophet will come and lie to you because you don't like the truth. And here's how it works. They see the word foreknowledge and they say, it still comes back to me. I'm still going to preach my Arminian Gospel because it's those who hear the message, believe it, and receive Jesus as their personal Savior that God elects to eternal life and regenerates them. Because look at what it says in 1 Peter 1-2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They look at those words and say, God foreknew who would accept Jesus as their personal Savior and He elected... Which means to choose them to eternal life. How do we understand this sentence? God, having loved us with special affection and favor and delight from eternity, elected us in Christ Jesus. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This foreknowledge in this place is not God's knowledge of us doing things. This is God's loving affection for us from the foundation of the earth. It's foreknowledge in a different sense of the word than they use it. I don't need to tell you that God is omniscient. There we have that prefix again, omni, and science, which means knowledge. So that omniscience means all-knowing, all-knowledge. God knows all things. So when we see the word K-N-O-W in our King James Bibles, we know that God knows All things that are going to come to pass. He knows all men. He knows the number of hairs on our head. But there's another word. There's another use of that word and another sense that we never want to forget. And that is that the word know means a personal and intimate relationship and a sense of affection, favor, and delight. When the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4, and Adam knew his wife, Eve, was that God introducing them so that he got to know her, so that he became aware of her, so that, no, it means all of a sudden they had a personal and intimate relationship and came together as one in a sex, sexual relationship, and Cain was the result. Right. Now you know what the word "no" means. That's Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, and there's many more like it. Look at Psalm 1-6. Look at Psalm 1-6. Go to fourteen. Psalm 14, please. Let me go back and chase down that foolish idea of conditional election. God looked down to see those that were going to believe on Him, accept Him, seek Him, understand Him, love Him, fear Him, and He chose to elect them. That's an impossible situation if you've read the Bible, but at least they have the foreknowledge rope to get it up over a high branch. And they use it. Look at Psalm 14. We will agree with them on halfway, won't we? God did look down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that... Let's read it. Verse 2. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. He did look down. He was looking for those that were seeking Him. He was looking for those that understood that they needed to humble themselves and repent of their sins. But here's what He found. Verse 3, they are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And this same chapter is repeated in Psalm 53. Very same words. It's in there twice for emphasis from the Holy Spirit of God. The Lord did look down from heaven, but he did not find any that understood or sought him. And when you go to Romans chapter 3 and see the Apostle Paul expanding the state a little bit, he said, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what God found when he looked down upon the children of men. He did not find A segment of society loving him, fearing him, delighting in him and seeking him. He did not find that at all. He found that they had all together, all of them, gone out of the way. There was not one righteous. No, not one. Not one. So, if election is based on God's foreknowledge of us doing something, how many are elect? None. Zero. It's empty. The null set. Hell is full and heaven is empty. Their doctrine is crazy. Psalm 1, we're talking about the word know. Are you thankful that God knows you? Or are you really thankful that He knows you? I say this very reverently. I don't really care that He's omniscient. I'm thankful that He loves me. Do you know what I mean now by the word know? Who cares if He just knows me? That He knows Jonathan Crosby is so tall, weighs so much, more than it was ten years ago, and knows all those things about me. That's not enough. I want him to love me. I want him to know me with favor and affection and delight. Look at Psalm 1-6. Let's look at a few examples. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You've read that verse a hundred times. Does it mean a little bit to you right now? For the Notice the words. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but does that mean He doesn't know the way of the wicked in a way of knowledge? Is He aware of the wicked? Of course course He is. Is the the use of word know in this verse referring to being aware of them, or is it referring to more? Approval, favor, delight, blessing. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. He is delighting in the way of the righteous. He's pouring out His favor. He's showing His love and affection toward the righteous in their way. But what about the way of the ungodly? It shall perish because He's going to blow against it and crush it. It's the opposite of love. This is describing relationship, affection, and delight. And there's many of these. Go to Amos chapter 3. I, there's, there's many of them. I can't... There's many. Amos chapter 3. Foreknowledge. Oh, what does foreknowledge mean? If it says we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, and then they go to Romans chapter 8, and do you know what it says there? For whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate. Predestination must be based on foreknowledge as well. But it doesn't say for what he did foreknow, it says for whom he did foreknow. Right. He had already loved them with an everlasting love. And He predestinated them based on that love. He chose to love them as He put them in Christ Jesus and made a choice to love because He says, I will have compassion on whom wants My compassion. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Amen. Amos chapter 3. I know it's hard to find the book of Amos, but it's worth it. Look at this verse. Verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Was the Israelite nation the only people God knew in a sense of awareness and cognizance? No. He knows all the nations. He knows everything. He knows all men. Nothing can be hid from Him. He fills heaven and earth. All the statements of the Bible, all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So what does it mean here? You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I loved, favored, and delighted in of all the nations of the earth. It's been the Jewish nation, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that as, na- as a nation He chose to love and have favor upon, and that is the word no. In the last day, the Lord Jesus Christ will say to the wicked, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Did He know about them? Did He know their birth date? Their parents? Everything that ever happened to them in life? But He did not know them in a personal, intimate relationship of affection, favor, and delight. I never knew you. He knows all about them. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Notice what condition they're still in. They're still workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.5 5 says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. But what does it say about the righteous? Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more by a covenant made with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is impossible for Him to call one of the elect a worker of iniquity in that eternal, legal, final sense that the wicked are called workers of iniquity because He chose us in Christ Jesus that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That is the foreknowledge of God. When the Bible says elect according to foreknowledge, it's not that God chose us because we had already chosen Him. It's because God chose us because He loved us. And He told us how that makes sense in the English language back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when He says, I, I, I'm going to turn you to it. If I mess this one up when I've just mentioned the English language, I'll be a fool. The Lord did not... Deuteronomy 7.7 7, The Lord did not set His love upon you. Notice. How does God love? I wish we could all learn how to love this way. Love is not a feeling that takes a hold of you. Whenever something takes a hold of you that makes you feel real warm and fuzzy, that's lust. Start with setting your affection on the right things. And the the Lord does that. And That's what we want to learn to do. Love is a choice. After you make that choice and if you make it well and you fulfill the Word of God in that choice, He'll give you all the feelings. But if you operate by feelings and try to make your choices by feelings, you've got the cart before the horse. You're in trouble. That's called an accident. Most marriages are accidents. Deuteronomy 7.7 7, The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, now, wait a minute. The Lord set His love upon you because the Lord loved you. Do you like that? How much room is there in that, those two verses for you to get involved of winning the Lord's love by doing something to please Him? The Lord set His love upon you because He loved you. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And whom He will, He hardeneth. This is the foreknowledge of God. When we read Romans 8:29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. For whom, not what, but whom, he loved, he chose to love, he set his love upon them. Let me quote it again. Jeremiah 30, no, I want someone else to quote it. It's one of the memory verses. I want to hear Jeremiah 31, 3. I need it. I can't remember it. Adam? Amen. Praise the Lord. Dave, did you hear that? That's a wonderful verse, and you know what? We want Adam to know that verse, don't we? Amen. We want Adam to know that verse. Brother, isn't that verse wonderful? Amen. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Now, I set my love upon thee because I love thee. That's how the Lord loves us. He chooses to love us. He had to put us in Christ Jesus. At the same time and with the same choice and with the same determinate counsel, because he can't love an unholy object. So he put us in Jesus Christ to be holy and without blame. And that's where he loves us, and we will never come out of that position. And we had a prayer made just a little while ago that said, We are thankful for your love, O God, that is so great that we can never be separated from it. Do you know how all the Arminians describe hell? Separation from God. You've heard heard that, Lou? Cornelius, you've heard that, haven't you? The second death is separation from God. And yet, they say that God loves all men. And yet, Romans 8 says we can never be separated from the love of God. But they are all separated from God. They're confused. It's called Arminian confusion. He's made shambles of their religion with the Word of God. He elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God chose to love us before the foundation of the world, and wrote our names in the book of life of the Lamb, before the foundation of the world. Chose us in Christ Jesus to be holy and without blame, before the foundation of the world. Foreordained Jesus Christ to come and die for us, before the foundation of the world. Set His grace and purpose upon us, before the world began. That is the foreknowledge of God. So that Jesus can come into this world and say, I know my sheep. I know my sheep. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my hand. I know my sheep. Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and say that the faith of some had been overthrown. False teachers had overthrown the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. Oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? We don't want our faith to be overthrown, but even if it is, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Is there more to that verse? And this is what we ought to go home on. Eric, if we love this truth, there is only one way to live. And it's the only way that we can assure ourselves that we have the love of God set upon us. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Let's walk out of this place and hate sin and live a righteous and holy life for the God that has loved us because He loved us. And He's loved us with an everlasting love and therefore with loving kindness He has drawn us. I ran away from home when I was 16 years old and this man right here put a Bible out to me on the way out the door. Would you please take this with you? And I said, I don't have any need of that where I'm going. Therefore, with loving kindness, he drew me. I thank the God of heaven for saving me and drawing me and changing my whole heart, mind, and makeup. He rewired me. Right. I had wired myself. I can tell you the things that I loved in high school and I can't tell you right now. But he rewired me to love him and to love his word. As he rewired you with the grace of God, you know what I'm, right. I know it's not in the Bible. It doesn't say rewired. It says regenerated. It's the same thing. I'm trying to explain that to you. He gave me a new heart. He gave me a new mind. I love these things. I'm so thankful for reading them a long time ago that changed my life. After being regenerated, to hear the truth and to have it well presented fills your heart with joy. But let's serve that Lord. You know the passages I began with a few hours ago. Bow down. Kneel before Him. Praise Him and worship Him. And let's sing one more time. You will be asked about singing on April 29th of the year 2007 when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make this a prayer and a prayer, prayerful worship as we close out this assembly. If you have not believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on Him today. It is the first evidence that He has opened your heart and set His love upon you because only a man, elect of God and born again, will ever consider it. And then add to that faith virtue and to that virtue knowledge and to knowledge patience and the other fruits of the Spirit. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall, Amen. but you shall receive an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. 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 The dominion of Shiloh into the everlasting kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God have mercy upon us.